Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Today I want to talk a bit about wind turbines, the promise of green energy, and the harm they're causing wildlife, especially birds like eagles. Modern energy producing wind turbines are truly a marvel of ingenuity and engineering, far removed from windmills of the distant past. The first mention of windmills was in 644 AD in Persia, and later in the 12th century, they were known to be used for grinding grain and moving water. But the relevance of old-fashioned windmills faded when electricity as a power source developed during the Industrial Revolution. While the traditional windmill harnessed the power of the wind to complete various tasks, wind turbines harnessed the power of the wind to generate electricity. The physical size of wind turbines can be huge. Offshore wind turbines can be as large or larger than the Statue of Liberty. The modern wind turbine industry boomed in the 1970s in a need to produce alternative energy, sparked by the oil crisis of 1973 and the energy crisis of 1979. Developing more environmentally friendly alternative sources of energy is a worthy endeavor that overall I support. However, what has become shockingly clear is that environmentalists and conservationists are unwilling to have the complete and complex conversation about the effect that wind farms are having on our very own wildlife, particularly on our birds. In 2013, the Wildlife Society Bolton published a study stating that wind turbines killed approximately 573,000 birds annually in the United States. Considering that that number was reported nine years ago and the wind farming industry has grown since then, the statistics have certainly worsened. Eagles.org reports that by 2030, the United States is aiming for 20% of its generated electric energy to originate from wind turbines, compared to 2016, when only about 5.5% was generated in this fashion. So it's a tough goal to shoot for, for sure. But my biggest worry is that ever-increasing numbers of eagles may be killed in pursuit of so-called green energy. More evidence of the killing comes via the United States Fish and Wildlife Services, which gathers deceased bald and golden eagles so that Native American people are able to legally own and acquire eagle feathers and other parts. Since the rise of industrial wind turbines in the Midwest, the Eagle Repository, that's what they call it, has seen a 250% increase in eagle carcasses sent in. Terry McGovern, writing for the Gazette, also reports that the most likely place for an American to find an eagle carcass is near a wind farm. And of course, we know this and have discussed this in past shows. Still, getting hard data is challenging. In general, it's been the practice for wind farms and wind energy companies to keep the data on bird casualties confidential and unavailable to the public. The only state in our country that requires the mortality data be made available to the public upon request and that the data be collected by independent third-party companies is Hawaii. Now, wouldn't you think that all wind energy companies should be required to release data on the damage their wind turbines have caused to the local wildlife? It's not in their interests to do so. So we need to close that loophole. Now, 
A little explanation about how and where wind farms are allowed to be built is in order before we get to the company ESI Energy, which recently was finally found guilty of killing 150 eagles in violation of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Construction of smaller community wind farms are regulated locally, guided by ordinances, zoning restrictions, and then permitting. But the larger wind farms that serve the energy grid, they must deal with a few agencies to get their permits, including the Bureau of Land Management, the United States Forest Service, the Conservation Reserve Program or Forestry Stewardship Council, if the site of a wind farm is on a land trust, the Federal Aviation Administration, if a structure is over 200 feet high and close to an airport or in critical flight paths, and the United States Fish and Wildlife Service, if a wind farm or turbine poses a threat to wildlife or potential interruption to migration patterns. Companies do not necessarily need permits from the United States Fish and Wildlife Service in order to build their wind farms. However, if they wish to avoid prosecution for potentially violating the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, which makes it illegal to kill bald eagles under federal law, it would seem advisable. Now, ESI Energy it's a subsidiary of renewable energy giant Next Era Energy Inc. Since 2012, ESI has been responsible for a minimum of 150 bald and golden eagle deaths at 50 of its wind farms. Out of the 150 deaths, 136 were directly attributed to the bird's collision with the wind turbine blades. But it took a lawsuit to reach that conclusion. You see, prior to building new wind farms in Wyoming and New Mexico, ESI was warned that their wind turbines were likely to lead to bird casualties. They ignored the warnings and continued anyway. The wind farms built in Wyoming is what ultimately raised a red flag to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because they noted in March 2019 that there was an abnormally high number of golden eagle nests in Converse County, Wyoming, where ESI had already decided to install their next wind farm. This is when U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service warned ESI that this could cause many eagle casualties and the company ignored them. This is also what brought the company to court a few years later, since the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service already had them under close watch. The United States Department of Justice found that ESI did not apply for the appropriate permits, which would allow them to operate their wind farms. ESI was finally found guilty of violating the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, under which the, quote, Killing, capturing, selling, trading, and transport of protected migratory bird species without prior authorization by the Department of Interior, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. ESI failed to follow a law that has been in place to protect migratory bird species, and they got away with it for about 10 years. They now must pay an estimated $8 million in fines and restitution and begin a five-year probation. Here's what the probation consists of. The company has been assigned an Eagle Management Plan requiring a budget of $27 million in efforts to minimize unnecessary casualties brought upon the Eagle population surrounding their wind farms. ESI will also be held financially responsible for each bald or golden Eagle death that they cause. And 
Obviously, since it's what got them here, the last part of their court ruling states they must apply for the essential permits at each wind energy facility where eagle killings might occur. Todd Kim, the assistant attorney general of the Justice Department's Environment and Natural Resources Division, reacted to the court's ruling, stating, For more than a decade, ESI has violated wildlife laws, taking eagles without obtaining or even seeking the necessary permit. We are pleased to see ESI now commit to seeking such permits and ultimately ceasing such violations. Conversely, a predictable response from ESI's parent company was released, which states, We disagree with the government's underlying enforcement activity. Building any strutting, driving any vehicle, or flying any airplane carries with it a possibility that accidental eagle and other bird collisions may occur. Now, that's a brilliant response, isn't it? So for us, it's been obviously encouraging to see that courts are beginning to hold energy companies accountable with their effect on the local ecosystem. It's not about tearing wind energy down, but rather about ensuring that wind energy can be conducted responsibly so it doesn't destroy the landscape and inhabitants of the very planet it's trying to protect. The pursuit of cleaner energy production must not absolve companies of the responsibility to other species on the planet. And I think there's too much of this halo effect in the so-called green energy domain. Besides killing individual birds, as documented in the ESI case, the disruption of migratory patterns and in coastal wind farms, the interruption of the communication systems of marine life, all these must be given greater weight by industry and be more fully recognized by green energy advocates generally. And and by the way, if you're unfamiliar with what I'm referring to about the marine life, Kernan Kelly, CEO of Oceans Integrity, explains that ocean wind farms can interrupt the communication systems of marine life. And this changes the way sea animals are able to gather and hunt and mate and migrate and survive. It affects their entire way of life and intercepts communication patterns that can span hundreds of thousands of miles. So it's all too obvious that energy companies are not placing enough consideration into where they build their wind farm sites and that site's relation to birds, bats, and other nearby wildlife. Maybe the ESI result will change that. According to Michael Hutchins, the director of American Bird Conservancy's 2020 Bird Smart Energy Campaign, wind energy companies can now hire a consultant to conduct a study on the effect their wind turbines will have on the wildlife surrounding them before installation. But the individuals they hire do not need to be scientists or deeply accredited in the field. And Hutchins reports that he has yet to encounter a pre-construction study done that suggests altering, delaying, or canceling a project in some way because of its effect on wildlife. Well, that tells you a lot right there, doesn't it? So I think Hutchins is on the right track here. And in my view, there's indeed a conflict between green energy advocates and animal protectors. But, of course, you don't have the green energy factions over here and the animal people over there. There's a lot of overlap. And even an individual can feel conflicted. So, in conclusion, 
I applaud the judgment against ESI and hope we can continue to require rigorous, objective, and uncorrupted studies to guide effective and humane site determinations for large wind farms. And I hope we can be aware of the green halo effect and keep open minds and a healthy dose of skepticism and vigilance as the industry continues to grow. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, more with Animals Today right after the break. back to the show. Peter, you know the phrase crazy cat lady, right? Yep, yep. It's been a commonly used stereotype or metaphor, whatever you want to call it, referring to a woman, perhaps an older woman, who lives a rather isolated or semi-secluded life, maybe not married, maybe a bit eccentric, maybe has some mental issues, but has all her cats for companionship. Is that a good description of the stereotypic phrase crazy cat lady? I think so. That's There's a profile to that. Well, a recent study pretty much debunks this stereotype. The study published in the journal Royal Society Open Science suggests that people who own cats are no more likely to experience mental or social problems than those with dogs or no pets at all. And cat owners have the same levels of loneliness, depression, and anxiety as everyone else. The study said, quote, we found no evidence to support the cat lady stereotype. Cat owners did not differ from others on self-reported symptoms of depression, anxiety, or their experiences in close relationships. Our findings, therefore, do not fit with the notion of cat owners as more depressed, anxious, or alone. Now, this conclusion backs a similar finding by researchers at the University College London in 2017, which found no link between cat ownership and the development of psychotic symptoms. Okay, so before I go on to a couple additional findings from the study, let's talk about this stereotype, crazy cat lady, and this study debunking that myth. First off, do you believe the stereotype exists? Yeah, I think it's a real thing. I don't know if it's a stereotype. I think there are people who are like that, and you can say you're you're one of them. But do you believe that women who live alone with a dozen cats are mentally unstable? Well, not necessarily. Okay. But not something that you could capture in, you know, those standard psychological uh, measures. I think they're a little off, but maybe not, you know, mentally ill. So you think there's something there? Something, yes. A woman with... Six cats, yeah, eight cats? I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> I know. But I know what you're saying, Lori, so I'm just going to offer an off-the-cuff sort of range that uh, if you've got three or uh, four cats, you can definitely be okay. But once you get into uh, six to seven to eight, that's transition zone, and more than eight, it's uh, highly worrisome. How's that? For the Spiegel range of uh, propensity to be a little off. So you're saying there's a spectrum. No, there's there's a risk profile. A risk profile. And there's a threshold yes. at which you fall onto this risk profile. Well, you don't profile. fall. It's gradual. It's gradual. Okay. Yes. It's a risk factor. The more cats, it's a correlation. Okay? It's like an R value. I remember R value. <laughs> 
So you're saying the number of cats owned is one of several factors. Right, that you might be a crazy cat lady. And I think it's the most important one. So if you've got a lot of cats, then chances are higher that you're going to fit the rest of the profile being older woman who's maybe a little eccentric than if you have, you know, two or three cats. I mean, crazy cat ladies don't have two or three cats, right? They have many more. Do you think that crazy cat lady you're speaking of starts out slightly anxious or depressed or neurotic and with each additional cat, she becomes a little more kooky? Oh, that's so good. You're thinking like an experimental psychologist (laughs) now. This is so good. And, you know, um, I know UCLA was involved in this research also. So be assured that our tax dollars helped fund this research. (laughs) So we should all feel good about that. Do you believe that the more feline friends you have, the crazier you are, Until when? Until you become classified as a psychopath or hoarder? (laughs) Well, you know, hoarding is a thing, and it starts probably small and gets out of control. Psychopath, I don't think we can go there. That's okay. But there's some propensity. And what the underlying things are have to be, you know, who knows what, what leads to it, you know? Okay, well, you're leaving it sort of vague as to what you believe someone crosses the line from being normal to psychopathic. But anyway. Psychopathic. (laughs) You keep on going there. (laughs) Now, let's say in addition to those 20 cats a person has, let's say 10 cats, there are two dogs in the house. Mm. Does that make it? a pathological situation or by having two dogs it protects you from landing on that spectrum of craziness oh that's good like a a buffer a moderating factor yeah the, right. so dogs bring you back to reality a little exactly. bit exactly oh, okay yeah, i would say that's probably a real thing really worth studying worth tax dollars funded <laughs> research let's go for it now we keep referring to this person as a lady do you think men without a spouse or partner and who have many cats exist? I mean, say you move into a new neighborhood and someone tells you that you have a reclusive neighbor who lives with several cats. Would you just automatically assume that person is a female? Yes. Yes? Yes. I know. Maybe I... Maybe you're sexist? (laughs) I wonder how crazy cat lady stereotype got started. Anyway, here are some additional findings from the study. Pet owners, those who have dogs or cats were found to be more sensitive and had a strong negative reaction like sadness to sounds of distress from any cat or dog, not just their own. And even though cat people are not more emotional than others, cat owners were particularly attuned to sad meows. And listen to this, whines and whimpers from dogs in distress were almost as upsetting to everyone as cries from human babies. In fact, the dog whimper or whine was rated the most distressing or upsetting to everyone. So in terms of evoking distress among people surveyed, a crying dog was found to be pretty much identical to a crying baby. And this includes even those individuals who don't own any pets. But what was interesting is that most of the people included in the survey were not parents, meaning to human children, which suggests that they had developed a sensitivity to pets' needs. And also this led the researchers to believe dogs have evolved to get our attention because they depend on us for survival. One of the researchers said, they, meaning dogs, have a really evocative signal and that makes sense. Cats will be okay without humans, but domesticated dogs absolutely rely on us for everything. They need us for survival. So the uh, co-evolution of dogs and people uh, led the dogs to sort of create the sound that's particularly evocative. And you know, Peter, I get this, this developing a sensitivity to the needs of our pets. 
you know, one of our cats, Margarita, is around 19 years old and has kidney disease, and Peter gives her subcutaneous fluids every other day. And even though you don't physically hurt Margarita when you do this, she absolutely hates it. And she lets out this horrible, distressing meow, and that meow just stresses me out so much. Yeah, I know. I wish she wouldn't do that, but uh, it's for her own good. I know. You're really helping her out there and keeping her very happy and... Hydrated. Hydrated, exactly. So what's more distressing to you, the sound of a crying baby or a crying dog? If there's a crying baby, I just don't hang out wherever that baby is, so I don't, I don't know. Many of our listeners know Peter is a pediatric ophthalmologist, and I'm an ophthalmologist for human adults. And we tried very hard to schedule the babies Peter would examine on days when I would not be in the office because babies don't like drops being put in their eyes, and they don't like having big bad doctors with white coats shining bright lights in their eyes be screaming and bawling their poor little eyes out and this is extremely distressing not only to me but to my adult patients who don't want to hear a baby screaming in the next exam room over all true all true but i have to say as distressing as it is to hear these babies cry hearing a dog cry or whimper is far more distressing to me and that doesn't surprise me one bit Lori. There is a National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. Yes, it's true, and if you ever get out there, you should really visit it so you can get up on your history and learn about uh, this important event. I've just learned that they have a collection relating to the dogs that were involved in that horrible conflict. I want to welcome Doran Cart. He is Senior Curator at the National World War I Museum and Memorial. Welcome, Doran. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so I was able to uh, view a little bit of the collection related to uh, dogs in World War I. Tell us, uh, give us an overview of what you've got going on there, and, uh, and how does the public access what you have? Okay, um, we don't have a whole lot of physical objects related to dogs. We have a few, but primarily it's through our records and our resources that we have in our public use library. But um, over the years, I've been real interested in, uh, you know, doing research on dogs uh, that were in World War One, and they were they were incredible uh, animals and made contributions to the war effort. Dogs were really uh, played important roles uh, for most of the armies that were involved uh, in World War One from 1914 to 1919. Uh, dogs hauled machine gun and supply carts and lots of other supplies. Their main, um, one of their main efforts were that they were messengers, and they often delivered their missives under a hail of fire. And according to one French source that we have here at the museum, at one time during the war, more than 2,000 dogs were in service on the Western Front. That's incredible. And dogs were also 
they were also trained, especially by the French Army, to be first aid dogs. And they were selected and carefully trained, often by, for months, to go onto battlefields and locate wounded soldiers. And they were trained to either stay with the soldier until human aid came or to bring back evidence of the wounded French soldier. And many of the dogs actually carried first aid kits in packs on their backs for immediate use for treating wounded soldiers. So they were very important in that aspect. They really uh, served in a lot of those efforts, but many others, um, one of the ones that we have photographs of uh, in our collection, the French used the small dogs in their trenches for rat catchers because rats were the overwhelming scourge of trench life, and those rat killer dogs proved invaluable. And there's one picture that we have. It shows all these rats lined up on the side of the trench and the rat killer dog sitting on top very proudly looking at all his catches with his French handler. And rats were a scourge because they spread disease. They would eat the soldiers' food, and they would actually, you know, attack soldiers when they were sleeping. And so to have these kind of rat catchers was very important. Really the most important aspects of dogs in the war is that they were friends. They were mascots, they were companions, and they played an important role in morale building. And they created, what was really important, they created a feeling of home life under war conditions. Probably the most famous dog and and people of my generation certainly heard of came from a pair of puppies that were rescued by a fellow who was in an Air Force unit. And they were looking at a abandoned German airfield to see if they could use it for their headquarters. And there were two German Shepherd puppies that had been abandoned. And uh, the soldier adopted them. And he named them after these two kind of souvenir French dolls that a lot of the soldiers brought home with them. And the dogs were, the dolls uh, were named Ren Tin Tin and Nanette. And so the soldier named his puppies Ren Tin Tin and Nanette. And he got got permission to bring them home. They had to be quarantined, and they had to have their shots and everything before they could put them on the troop ships. So he had the two puppies and brought them home. And right before the ship landed in New York, uh, Nanette died of distemper. But the male puppy, Ren Tin Tin, survived. And the owner... The fellow who uh, had saved him uh, at the, in uh, the battle from the battlefields took him home with him to California, and as he grew, he was uh, he trained and he entertained people in the neighborhood and everything. And a Hollywood director saw this dog and said, "Wonder if he could do tricks in a movie." And so he did, and he became one of the most famous movie stars of the late 1920s and early 30s. And, of course, his name was Rin Tin Tin. You provided a couple of short videos to me, or your team did, and uh, one of them 
shows uh, the soldiers taking the message out of the capsule around the dog's collar. It's really amazing. Uh-huh. Why was this needed? Were there not radios at that time? Uh, give us a little well, context. There were no wireless radios. Yeah. Uh, uh, there were, you know, everything was wired. So telephones were the main main means of uh, communication, but in areas where they didn't have the telephone wires strung and they couldn't use other methods of communicating, then they would use the dogs as messengers. And one kind of anecdotal story about dogs as messengers, and one of the main reasons that they were used was they could get low to the ground, and so they were not in sight of the enemy. And the other one, believe it or not, in a horrible war that was going on and and the millions of people killed, uh, humans actually found it hard to shoot at dogs. Mm. They could shoot at humans, but they found it hard to shoot at the dogs who were on the battlefield. So they kind of had a little shield around them because of the uh, human's affection for dogs. One of the images your team also forwarded to me was a almost like a postcard, and it's got five dogs uh, uh-huh. from different countries, and the uh, caption is, I'm neutral, but not afraid of any of them. And they're dressed as if they're from those countries. What does that mean? Why was this produced, and who's it talking to? Well, basically, it, that postcard, and, and it's one of my favorites, I know it very well, was done in 1915. And America was still neutral at that time, and the United States did not join as a full fighter in the war until April of 1917. And so uh, that was not the only instance like this that dogs were actually used as propaganda. And so their images, and the one you're, you're talking about, the British are represented by the English bulldog and the German by the dachshund and the American by the Bull Terrier. And if I recall correctly, he's got a basically an American flag tied around his neck. And then the French Bulldog, he's dressed like a French soldier, and the Russian Wolfhound like a Russian soldier. And he's, you know, and the, and the American dog saying, I'm neutral but not afraid of any of them. And that's what he meant, you know, that America would side with, with people, but he was not afraid of fighting any of the, well, people or dogs that are represented in the card. And so dogs were used in that way, especially uh, the anti-German sentiment by the, created by the Americans on postcards and things like that. And so he was always represented like as a dachshund with the spiked, the ubiquitous spiked helmet on his head. And that was one kind of thing that the Americans knew about the German army was that spiked helmet yeah. and because it represented uh, the Prussian uh, attitude. And so uh, that's how they were represented. But I know there's another postcard where, where an American Uncle Sam's hand is holding the poor little dachshund by the neck saying, you know, uh, I'm not going to be bitten by you or something like that. So, uh, yeah, he, the dachshund suffered pretty much in the propaganda that was put out during the war. And one of the most striking images you also shared with me was a line of dogs pulling those machine gun carts you referred to. That is really uh, an incredible thing to imagine. What's the story behind an image like that? 
And uh, if it's the same picture that I'm thinking of, uh, those are Belgian uh, work dogs, and they were part of the Belgian army. And the, the machine guns that the Belgians were using were very heavy, and so and the ammunition. And so they had these they had these carts, and the Belgians didn't have as the horses that they had available were primarily used for the artillery, and so the dogs then were used for pulling the machine gun carts. And yeah, there is one really great picture of the Belgian troops, and this is early in the war in the fall of 1914, uh, showing the dogs there with that are laden down pulling the machine gun carts. And I know there's another photograph of uh, a couple of American soldiers uh, who were kind of playing around for selfies, as we would call them today, photo opportunities, and, they're, and one of them sitting in a, in a dog-pulled cart. And so they were used for labor like that as well. Doran, what else can visitors uh, see when they come visit the museum? I'll give you a chance to pitch the museum so everyone nearby will come visit you. We are an international museum, and all the nations who were involved in World War I are represented here at the museum. So uh, it starts in our main gallery. It starts in 1914, and, you, and it goes around all the way to 1919 at the end of the war with the peace treaty. And, you know, everything from uniforms to cannons to uh, uh, communication devices like we were talking about. So we cover really every aspect of the war, from air warfare to sea, the war at sea to uh, women. We're very, uh, we have a large collection of women's materials. Uh, they were very important in the war effort. And, um, you know, it really covers the whole gamut of this uh, cataclysm of the 20th century. And if people want to visit, they can go online to our website, and it's www.theworldwar.org. And we have uh, lots of things on there for people to see. And we also have links to our Facebook and to our Twitter account. Doran Cart, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Appreciate your letting me come on this morning, Doctor. More with Animals Today after this break. Massachusetts and a number of other states are now considering registries for animal abusers, modeling them after sex offender registries. Do you think these are a good idea? Will they stop animal abuse? Bob Ferber, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Lori. Bob, what are the goals of these registries? Uh, well, the original goal of these the sex offender registries was a tool for law enforcement to help them if there was a, a, a violent, like a rape or a, a sexual attack against somebody or a child molester, they would have a tool to be able to look back at people that have already been convicted and invest, use them and investigate them, talk to them. So it was a pool of people that might be suspects. Uh, as a re- but the, 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 the uh, function of it expanded when Megan's Law in California, which is rather famous law about a child uh, molester and killer, uh, 
it, it became available. People wanted to make this information available to the public. And so now this registry, and I believe it's true in a lot of other states, you can find out who has been registered as a sex offender and who lives in your neighborhood. So I think the goal is twofold. It was originally law enforcement, and then it got expanded to let people know that, you know, be cautious, somebody down the street is a convicted sex offender. Watch your children if they walk into school or something to that effect. Hey, Bob, it's Peter. How you doing? Good, Peter. So uh, is the analogy with these registries for animal abusers to the sex offender registries, is that appropriate? Is this an extension of that thinking? I I think it's applicable, Peter, to uh, animal abusers and in two ways. Number one, law enforcement can use a list of animal abusers to be able to investigate other cases of animal cruelty. I have one right now where they're trying to find out somebody who, whoever mutilated some dogs and cats in a neighborhood. So they, it would be helpful if we had a registry to, so police could go back and look as, has anybody in the neighborhood already been convicted of that? But I think the way sex offender registries help the neighbors to know who's next door, I think with animal abusers, the key way it can help is to prevent people from getting more animals. And this means that these registries or this information needs to be available to shelters, to rescue groups, um, to uh, maybe even pet stores, although I'm not personally in favor of stores that sell animals, but if they do, maybe at least they should have access to make sure that they're not selling it to somebody who's been convicted of animal cruelty. And and breeders as well, Bob? Well, you know, you, I think we all three agree that, you know, we, we have some issues with breeders. Right, absolutely. But my feeling is no matter who it is, if you're transferring an animal to someone else, right. it would be helpful if you, whoever you are, whether you're a breeder, you're a hardcore rescuer, you're a shelter worker, to be able to know that whoever's taking the animal, at the very least, is not convicted of animal cruelty. My fear with animal cruelty is that animal cruelty laws also include things where people have done something that was, yes, it was a crime, but it's not something where they're a danger to the public. They may have, we we have a lot of cases of animal neglect where people are guilty of the crime, but they did it because they couldn't take care of their animal because of money, because of a personal situation, because of something where they delegated it to someone else, something where they, they should be held accountable, but are they a danger to somebody else? Are they somebody that all rescue groups need to know about because of maybe an isolated, uh, excuse me, an isolated incident. So we have to worry about if there's a registry, how do you define who's in that registry of animal abusers and who isn't? And right now, you know, the same with the sex offender registries. It's not really, there's lawyers and legislators haven't come up with a good way to just keep these registries to the people that we really want to know about. So I think that's what we have to figure out. No one has. Uh, and another problem, by the way, with these registries is that for privacy reasons, you can find out, for example, if there's a sex offender down the street from you in California, but you can't find out what they did. You can't find out if they were a rapist, if they were a, a flasher. Same thing with if you have somebody down the street that's an animal abuser, wouldn't you want to know, was it dog fighting? Was it beating an animal, poisoning an animal, or was it 
something where they didn't give their dog enough food because they were having money problems and the dog or they didn't have the medication for an animal. Yes, I'd want to know, but either way, I wouldn't want that person living next door to me. Well, I, <laughs> and, you know, and that's a fair statement, uh, but you can see how it, uh, it dilutes the, uh, yeah. the, the, the effectiveness of it for law enforcement, and I agree with, you know, there's an argument to be made, Laurie, that the person who neglected a dog, I might want them down the street from me, because maybe I could, you know, make sure, check on them. Maybe they're not a physical danger to me. I, I've, I've certainly educated a number of people in my life who have been neighbors and friends who weren't doing what I thought was the appropriate thing for an animal, and they're like, oh, thanks, Bob. Well, so, well I, I see your point, Lori, and I probably agree with you that I don't want any animal abusers in my neighborhood. Uh, you know, do I, I've had numerous people as a prosecutor who were convicted of animal abuse, but everybody agreed that this shouldn't get in the way of them being able to adopt another animal in the future, because let's say they took a course or they took a, a class in better animal care or they made better arrangements to make sure that when they're taking care of their sick mother that there's somebody to care for their animal. Well, we sure, so, didn't, hesi- we sure didn't hesitate to allow Michael Vick adopt another animal. I know. And that's a really good, you know, and that involves other legislation that we've talked about on your show about if you're convicted of animal abuse, should you be allowed to adopt another animal? And I think in a good way, states around the country are starting to include it in their animal cruelty laws that you can't have another animal if you've been uh, convicted of certain types of animal abuse. In California and many other states, we have laws now that are starting to prohibit people from having an animal after they've been convicted of animal abuse, especially serious cases of animal abuse. I'm very much in favor of that. But without a sex, I mean, oh, sorry, an animal abuse registry, how are people going to know? So right now in California, you can be convicted of felony animal abuse, and you can go into your local, that same person can go into most local government shelters and rescue groups and get another animal, because none of those people can find out about it. And that is probably the the most important part of these new animal abuse registries, is that when people are uh, ordered by a judge to not have an animal, there literally is no system for enforcing that. These registries are the beginning of that. And in spite of all the issues and complications that I've talked about, I think overall it's, an, it's a very critical thing that we have to do to protect animals. Bob, we get the feeling around here also that people are ready for these and we're looking forward to seeing how it plays out in Tennessee. We'll speak with you further about it once it gets going. I think so, and, and I think that we, we all, no offense to people who live in Tennessee, but it's not a state that has been known to be a leader in animal rights and animal welfare, and I think it's very interesting and admirable that we're seeing states like this who are saying, we're sick of it. Thanks. And so I think that it's a really good sign for animals around the world. We agree. Thanks so much, Bob. You're welcome. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Mm-hmm.